I think that people who want to solve the climate crisis with $500 ton carbon are morally bankrupt. They should not be trying to do that. You should be trying to get the, the price down. Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to part two of our interview with Neil Dykeman. He's the cleantech venture capitalist who's got some bold perspectives on how the actions from our global governments, politicians, markets, and society all sound rather rational when it comes to addressing climate change, even if it feels like everyone's just ignoring the big elephant in the room. If you've not listened to part one of this interview, I recommend that you start there. Don't worry, we'll be here when you get back. Uh, Before we get to part two, I'm your host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I'm the founder and queen bee at Technica Communications, and that's a PR firm focused on serving climate tech startups. I also lead Women in Clean Tech and Sustainability, where I support all genders in this space to help them find their dream jobs. If you're enjoying the show, please ask yourself, would you give Earthlings 2.0 five stars? I know some of you would, because some of you have been giving us this gift, and I deeply appreciate it. Thank you. Please take a moment to go to your podcast app if you haven't given us this gift of a review and leave us a few stars, as many as you think we are worthy of. And if you're in a financial position to support us, please go to our Patreon page and become a member. Every little bit counts. And now a moment from the Resource Labs Network. In this part of our time with Neil, we'll dive deeper into the market mechanisms at play or lack thereof that are driving a price on carbon, and how current political trends could be stagnating future movement on regulations. We'll also cover some social factors that we all get a chance to overcome broadly. If you've listened to part one, you'll recall that Neil Dykeman is a founder and managing partner of Energy Transition Ventures, and he's the chairman of cleantech.org. He has a long history in the cleantech sector, He's run countless startups as a founder. He's helped launch a VC fund at Royal Dutch Shell. He co-founded Jane Capital Partners, and he ran for the U.S. Senate in Texas. We're going to pick up our conversation on the topic of how to rethink the global challenge of mitigating climate change now that it's clear that the Kyoto Protocol was ineffective at stemming carbon emissions, because shortly after it was signed, China and India quickly surpassed the U.S. and Europeans in their emissions. It is almost economic suicide to try and solve climate change from the U.S. and Europe without engaging the rest of the world. It's like you're not, job number one. If you have a big, massive problem, you got to create buy-in to the problem and then to the solutions, even if that's not the best, fastest way to do it. We're still in the buy-in creation phase. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, we and we saw a global movement around the COVID nineteen pandemic. Countries mobilized. They they found money. They threw money at the problem. They closed their borders. It was very painful for all of us. I think the jury is still out on how effective it was because we're going to live with COVID nineteen. It utterly failed. And we spent trillions, and there's now a anti-vax movement. I think that's a, that, that is exactly what's happening in climate. It is bad. The outcome is like 
mm-hmm. very suboptimal. Yeah. Success would have been a two-week shutdown. You managed to tie, to tie it off and you kill it like prior pandemics had been killed. We completely failed. That is the way we're solving climate change now. Let's create as much economic pain as possible and create a culture war over the solution and then just go on with life. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is not how we want to be solving climate change. Thank you. Agreed. But venture capitalists and climate are kind of like the people making the masks. We got to do pretty well. Right. So if you're a startup founder in this messy world, yes, you ought to start a company in climate because we're going to have a lot of, there's so many, you just don't find the highest price piece of CO2 in one of the frame policy frameworks or market dislocations or geographies and just go sell that one. Oh yeah. And, and how many, uh, uh, startups are just sort of attempting to frame what they do in terms of the energy transition or, or, or climate when it's the connection there is really tenuous, but they know that there's money out there if they can frame it in that way. So we are not a climate tech investor. Other people are climate tech investors. I still use the term clean tech and we branded this firm, which is the same thing we've been doing for 20 years. It's the same technology I'm working on. We funded only I'm a PIM electrolyzer company. It's the same basic technology concepts that we were working on 20 odd years ago in PIM electrolyzers. And in fact, the people on that team were working on PIM electrolyzers 23 odd years ago at some of the same companies that still exist, right? Yeah, as much as the newbies like to think this stuff is new, no, no, we're, yeah, it, it's literally yeah. the threads of history that we're all that we're all looking at. So there's a lot of new investors in the sector and a lot of new founders, which is great, fantastic. I can't even keep up with the new entrants anymore. I, I stopped trying five years ago. This is terrific. Yeah, we define a climate tech inve- investor at our shop as someone who believes, like, okay, you got a little startup. Startup's supposed to have a value proposition and a problem statement and a customer. The climate tech startup and investor thinks the customer is the climate and the problem statement is getting rid of CO2. And their value proposition is how to get rid of CO2 irrespective of cost. We don't love that idea. Mm-hmm. We think CO2 should be cheap. We think power is cheap. Yeah. Well, our goal is to get the climate and CO2 abated in the cheapest way at the biggest scale in the fastest least cost path. I do not want 1,000 ton CO2. I do not want high power prices. That is stupid. That means all the poor people get hurt. That means all the economies get hurt. This is bad. We want low prices of energy. And we want a very, very low price of CO2. My shop believes CO2 needs to be $20 a ton. We believe it can be. Okay. I think that people who want to solve the climate crisis with $500 a ton carbon are morally bankrupt. They should not be trying to do that. You should be trying to get the, the price down. So expl- explain that concept to me for um, some of our listeners who are more of the layman uh, from the layman perspective. $500 a ton, solving solving climate at $500 a ton for carbon versus $20 a ton. Explain explain that concept for us. I mean, it's when you scale it, it's insane. Yeah, $500 a ton carbon, like you can literally just go cap every well. So we obviously do not have the cash or political guts to go 
buy every oil company, hand their shareholders three times their book value, and then turn them all off. Because we know we need the energy. Yeah. So you have to have energy. You cannot run a modern economy without energy. And you want cheap, clean, reliable energy. Okay. And you then on top of that, you need firm and dispatchable, and you need it in the location that it's needed. Or you have to move industry and people to the location you have it. Cities don't have to stay in the same spots. Industry, when you look at the broad swath of 100 years of history, industry moves and people move to resources and jobs. That's what made the U.S. special is our vaunted labor mobility. We've lost some of that post-financial crisis. And it's not true that you have to save every city right. if the world is fundamentally different in the future. Would we love to? Sure. We have the internet. Why do you need to be in the city? Oh, you want to pay five times as much for a house and you want to have you live in a heat island with lots of concrete and in a, in a huge apartment you know, complex. Okay, fine. That's our, that's our choice. We don't have to do that. GDP doesn't necessarily need us to. But for all this to operate, you have to have good price signals. Californians get mad at the prices of California. They move to Austin, Phoenix, and Tennessee. All the EV plants are basically down in the sun, down south. Oh, yeah. Because the labor cost is cheaper and it's warmer. They can get land. Yeah. So I, I think we're going to see changes, and they aren't all bad changes. If we want to solve the problem of the world, yeah, we uh, got to get rid of CO2. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We got to do it cheap. We got to do it reasonably fast. Or if we don't do it fast, we have to do it very, very big on the back end. And we need to do it in a way that doesn't destroy the pocketbook of everyone that it touches. And frankly, you can't get the votes and the political deals done if you are ripping the guts out of people's pocketbooks in any given country that you need to say yes. So yeah, if the U.S. And, and, and the EU would like China and India to participate in climate solutions, they're going to have to recognize that China and India have that as the fourth thing on their priority right now. Do I like that? No, I think it should be higher on their priority, but it is what it is. Well, I think it'll it'll go higher on their priority as as the climate continues to warm and we have more intense heat waves and more intense weather and sea levels continue to rise and it really starts to impact other aspects of their economy. That's that's what I think. Maybe. And my concern is by then it'll be too late. But our our opportunity remains and when we we set up energy transition as ventures as a fund on the premise of what's changed from when we were investing fifteen years ago. Well, the we call back then we called it alternative energy because it was a lot more expensive than conventional. Today we don't call it alternative energy. Nobody even uses the term anymore. I haven't even thought of that term for so long. <laughs> Wind and solar have kicked the ever living hell out of gas and coal on cost. Regardless of environmental attributes, they're just cheaper. Now they come with a complete flip in how they operate. We no longer have baseload power and then, uh, or, or baseload power and then peakers. We have wind and soil, we have, they call it the duck curve, but in reality, it's a peak or double hump built by because wind and solar like to run when they want to run. 
They're very consistent when they want to run. And the fuel is freight. They're solid state. So then you need to either adjust your load or fill in the shoulders, which gas can do and batteries can do and other things can do. So we're in a really cool, awesome, low-cost energy world that requires a complete rethink about how we produce and deliver energy and a complete rethink in how you run a modern economy based on the new source. So it's just a big, very, very big resource shock. In, in energy, there is no disruptive technology. There are only disruptive policies and resource shocks that look like disruptive technology after the fact. What we're really saying is, hey, we have the sun and we have the wind. This is a, these are very, very, very big, low-cost, cheap resources. This is fantastic. And, but it's a resource shock, not a technology shock. Mm-hmm. And it was catalyzed by a two decades ago policy shock that helped it drive down the cost curve and policy shocks that drove energy prices through the roof. The same gas price spikes that killed distributed generation two decades ago continued to help drive interest in renewables. So, And then we've got some trade shocks added on top of that. So that's what's happening in the world. And this is good. There, there are no negatives here. This is I'm a complete climate optimist. When we want to solve it, the tools are there. The policies are known. We already scaled them up and figured it out in Kyoto how to do it. Yeah, the partners are all at the table. They just are fighting over, yeah, listening to each other. The left in the U.S. does not listen to the right. The right is no longer listening to the left. I happen to believe it's because the left hijacked the mechanism and has poisoned it with other things. China and the U.S. are not listening to each other. The U.S. and, and Europe are now in a cat fight over who can subsidize green energy and green jobs more, while China manufactures solar and wind and and, uh, uh, and battery and car equipment and builds coal plants. I mean, it's like, on one hand, it looks really bad. And on the other hand, it's like, you know, all the tools that we were hoping would be in place by now are the scale-up me- mechanics and, and plants and manufacturing is happening. The cost structures crossed in 2017. Yeah, and now I can do things like green hydrogen that I couldn't do back then. The Saudi Arabia Capsarc has produced a report saying green hydrogen will be cheaper than blue in the kingdom at a dollar twenty-five MMBTU gas, the cheapest on the planet, insanely cheap because they'll be at one cent solar. Wow. Yeah, like you think that? I mean, when Capsarc is saying the kingdom can make hydrogen from the sun cheaper then it can make from gas. It's game over. We've already won. We're just fighting over, you know, who gets the most money out of it. (laughs) We're just being humans. (laughs) Look, if you are a brick policymaker, your challenge is poverty, GDP, and the middle income trap. That's your challenge. So in reality, you got a partner at some point, we're either going to, and so I think we're going to never going to get price of carbon. I think we're going to end up in this fractured price market, and we just got to live with it. And I think the driver that matters 
is renewable costs and energy costs are cheaper than we ever imagined they would get to this fast. And CO2 can be abated cheap when we want to. So you don't think we'll get a price of carbon? And by that, you mean an agreed to price that 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 markets can react to. It's always going to be a fragmented price, depending on where you are, or what industry you're in. Correct. We're there. We're not moving back. There's there's not a single serious policymaker or government today talking about a price on carbon. They're talking about command and control, tax, social justice, green jobs, finance, any number of things. Nobody is talking about carbon price. The only only place you hear that conversation is the voluntary market, which is not going to do the job. At least not right now. Well, I mean, meaning it's not it's not the right place to do the job. And so you can link carbon markets there. And the voluntary market is a Veblen good at the moment. Either a luxury or Veblen good, right? People are paying $1000 a ton for a carbon yeah, a CDR for removal credit, but won't pay $8 a ton for the same CO2 reduction because it comes from a different source and makes an emitter money. So if you're a startup or a venture capitalist, you go where the customer wants to pay. Now, are there trillions of dollars of budget at $1,000 a ton? No, otherwise we already would have solved climate change. Yeah, um, yeah. so those markets are going to have to reconcile. So there's a, what, what, what's really happening is those aren't even the same market. They're just fragmented pools of different markets. And once you begin to accept that, the world looks very rational, right? Do not go and try and sell Stripe and Microsoft yeah, a, uh, a offset from an emitter reducing its CO2. They don't want it. What do, you, what do they want then? I'm uh, not entirely certain. It appears they they want a carbon removal credit. They and they want you to mechanically build a tree. <laughs> they want mechanical tree. <laughs> what? I mean, the cheapest way to take carbon out of the atmosphere is plant trees, do soil carbon, all the things that are hard to verify and messy but real. And instead, we've decided let's not do that because the NGOs don't want a cheap credit getting sold to an emitter. So they attack anything that looks like that, and they don't want something that isn't perfect or pure getting claimed as an offset or a credit or a real reduction. But it is. If you redo how you run your cattle and you got more soil carbon trapped in there, the climate's happy. It doesn't care. Yeah. So we've got this world that wants to mechanically replicate nature because nature-based solutions are, wait for it, hard, messy, and too low cost to drive the behavioral change. That's what the buyer and the policymakers are really trying to accomplish. Right. And I, I'm a simple guy. Get me a clean price of carbon. We'll see good things happen. Get me a thousand price of carbon. We're going to see a thousand different good things happen. And some of them are not rational because that price is high price but low volume. And the economy needs high volume carbon. Sorry, the climate needs high volume carbon reductions and the economy needs them at a low price. Those should be our twin goals and only goals. 
But we all believe that. We all believe we're going to – we basically have hijacked climate to drive all our other agendas. Well, it's like it's like a what it's like a like a funding bill in the United States where you know it's going to get passed, so you throw in a bunch of stuff. Um, like a must pass bill. Yes. Yes, a must pass bill, and it just you know it just gets bogged down with all this other stuff because you know it's going to pass. I kind of feel like sometimes that's what's happened with climate on 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 the left side is that this is a existential problem. It's got to get fixed. There's there's movement behind it. And so let's also tack on all this other stuff. Yes, because they got to get their votes. Like, and you can see it now in the union fight with the administration. Like, look, dude, I love your electric vehicles, great, but those aren't my jobs in my factory. So I'm not voting for you to subsidize them and not give me wages. You know, it's this isn't irrational, and 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 there, and there shouldn't be blame, like finger pointing. This is basic kind of splitting of the dollar and how to grow the pie. And what's always struck me about Texas is that from from an outside perspective, I've always seen Texas as a state that really understands energy, like fundamentally understands energy markets. And you saw that with solar and wind gaining traction in a state that is also um, well seasoned around fossil fuels. And I always thought that was a very interesting market experience for the state. But now we see even the fights there because, and I'll, I'll, I'll go back to my favorite left-right divide. Yeah. Um, look at the rhetoric from pro-renewables and climate people. And imagine you are a mid-level you know, senior engineer, middle manager, making good money, doing an upstream or midstream operation. And you just go read the Twitter feeds of, of they're basically saying you are a morally bankrupt, bad spawn of the devil person. So what do you think I'm going to do? I can either say, oh, they're right. My whole job is blood money. Uh -huh. Or I can you know, say, go away. Or I can rationalize it. And, and of course, those people who are running that, they, they know how many BTUs have to be delivered and how many barrels to just run the economy tomorrow. And they're like, are you, are you, are you nuts? Right? Wait, wait, what do you think is going to happen? We saw it in Europe. You turn off the gas. Yeah. And, and so these two sides don't talk because they are, they, they think they're competing. The climate doesn't really care. Right. Yeah. The, now, uh, the climate cares about the overall CO2 balance and the net ins and outs. And you watch oil companies get ripped to shreds by NGOs pro-climate because they're doing wetlands restoration and planting trees because they're using that to get what the oil company calls license to operate to go be able to build a production plant. And the two sides, they're not even trying to communicate. So Texas, which is one of the biggest you know, uh, customers and the biggest producers of, elect of of renewable electrons, biggest in wind, biggest in batteries, about to be the biggest in solar, will soon be the biggest in EVs because they got more cars than anybody else. Yeah, the, it's the biggest in hydrogen, the biggest in everything. Great. And one of the biggest, if not the biggest ag state, the biggest in ag. It's, it's doing the job right. But if we have now poisoned the cultural environment in Texas 
to where it is very painful for someone who works in energy or in Texas. And you know your brother-in-law and the people paying the bills at your at your uh, at your hospital when the the client's coming in or renting your real estate. You know where they make their money. And it's like, hang on, these are not bad people. Why are my BFFs in California and yeah and New York talking about them like they are morally bankrupt bad people? It's the same divide we have in politics. You know, friends on the left and friends on the right will not. They think the other person is a bad person. They're not. They're not talking. And climate gets hammered. I'm I'm so glad that you you made that correlation between what's happening between. Um, you know, climate activists and people who work in fossil fuels and this divide, people not talking to each other, not even trying to understand each other, because I feel like that's bled over from politics. We've watched that. Um, um, this separation of the sides, nobody comes to the aisle to collaborate anymore. And I, my concern is as a society that we're going to see this, uh, what I would call group isolation. Well, no, we're already there. We're, look, I'm a libertarian. I believe that the one of the root causes of this is centralization of government and growth of government budgets. Because then essentially you're sucking dollars out of states to the Fed to Washington to redistribute, and you're sucking power from states to Washington to even things out, right? To to make it make a common market and all that and common policies. And then you're sucking dollars from cities and school districts to the state capital to redistribute back and and all of a sudden you divorce people from their policymakers but also it's like look do you really think texas tennessee california and delaware ought to be run the same way that is stupid mm-hmm. and so you create fights and then when you borrow money to do it for generations like i look at it i'm like we busted our country like like the ira makes a ton of money for me as a professional and i'm like we don't have that kind of cash. Where do you think it's going to come from? That's coming from future inflation. So then we whine about inflation. Well, what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> right? It's, it, it, our debt growth is outgrowing our GDP growth. It's, it's, it's just, what did you think was going to happen? So we fight over this stuff. And so I believe you decentralize authority. Yeah, you bring budgets into alignment, you reduce taxes, you reduce government, and you get and then you negotiate out because you know the New Yorkers and the Californians need to show up in Texas hat in hand, just like the Americans need to show up in China hat in hand and say, Hey, this is what I want, what do you want? Let's talk about it, and not say this is our policy. We say the see the same issue with cultural issues, pro-choice, pro-life, you know, run through them. It's like, great, maybe 60% of the country believes like you do, fine, great, pick your favorite policy, but 40% doesn't, or, or vice versa, or what you, and it's like, so why are you forcing everyone to be like you? If you really believe in diversity, we are destroying diversity in the world because we're driving linkages that are so common that the diversity came from, well, we were all kind of by ourselves. We developed our own culture, our own language, our own dialects, our own what have you. you know, and that, that stuff gets lost. 
Yeah. And then we try to say, and then we should all be like each other. No, we're, we don't need to be all like each other. You don't need to run every location like other location. There are some issues like climate where, hey, you can't solve them if you don't work together. But those issues, we've been you know, trying to centralize power and authority and make us all on the same page for so long. When one really big one comes along, like the national debt or climate change or a war, you can't even get on the same page anymore. How do we get out of this mess? Well, what makes you think we're in a mess, Lisa Ann? Um, well, because I would like to... We're setting, setting GDP records every day as a globe, setting productivity records every day, setting technology records every day, and a world that's getting older. But setting the flip side of a growing economy is we're literally setting average age records as a globe every day. So these are great records right solar is so cheap it almost doesn't even show up in the in the cost model anymore the modules are less are, they're, they're they're nothing right it's the steel and the labor and the policies and the yeah and the overhead that's the cost structure in a solar farm you can pull you can buy the modules cheaper than you can get the permit pulled on your house if you wanted to put a few on your house the government permit cost going to cost you more than the module now certainly for a small house. So these are really positive things. People haven't changed. We're the same people we've been for 10,000 years or 30,000 years of, of human life. We're not smarter than we were in, you know, in 700 BC. Yeah, we have more knowledge. We're, we, have, we know more, but we're not smarter. We have what we've created stresses that are new because of the connected world. Our, our worlds are more connected. And we haven't yet figured out how to live in a world that is both yeah, um, uh, connected and disconnected at the same time. So we've got to learn that. But it all boils down to talking to people. How do you fix a company? When you walk in, you do one of two things. You ask them what they changed and tell them to unchange that. Or you just sit down and you ask everybody on the shop floor and all the salespeople, hey, What's going on? What's the customer want? What's working? What's not? What do you think we should do? They all know. You go into a church and you, you know, it's not communicating and you just talk to people. They're all friends on the same page. You walk over and knock on your neighbor's door and bring them a potted plant or you know, eggs or something stupid as your excuse because they're just as lonely as you are. And if you want to solve crime, you do the same thing. You go and talk to people. And you work on the problem. And if they say, hey, I hear you, Lisa Ann, that one's important, but this is what I'm stressed over. If you want to solve it, you better listen. Right. Well, I think that's what I'm getting at with this mess is that um, I feel like, uh, you know, we're more disconnected as a society. There's I feel like there's a lot more infighting, but maybe there isn't. Maybe just historically, we've always been this way. Um, I'm I'm watching, you know, a set weather records warmest you know warmest summer on record yada 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 and um and t sometimes not all the time because i really work on being an optimist myself but sometimes i feel like we're all just sort of haphazardly going into the future to solve climate change and all these other problems that we have but we're not as organized or intentional as we could be collectively to be more effective you're talking to a libertarian about society coming together. 
I'm not interested in society coming together. I'm interested in individual actors having yeah, the right and authority and yeah, responsibility to handle their business. And I need to know what my neighbor thinks and stop talking about society and the, the, the group and start talking about the individual that builds because the society is just made up of all of us. And some of them, it's like even the concept of losing friends or what's the, the dating thing you see on, you know, on, on Twitter or whatever, you know, people will choose dates based on political and cultural viewpoints. Like, okay, we didn't used to do that. We used to live geographically and you were forced to deal with people who were richer than you and poorer than you and more conservative than you, more liberal than you, yeah, and different than you and the same as you because you were all there. And you couldn't escape it because we're geographically bound. We're no longer geographically bound. So we've started to, to self-select. Birds of a feather stick together. But we've gone found all the birds that look just like us. And we ignored the one right next to us. And then we talk about society, but we didn't ask the one next to us, are you part of my society? They say, no, I'm not. That, dude, Neil, that's not what I believe. Well that's, well, that's what I'm saying, is that we've lost our ability to relate to each other, even if we feel like we're coming from different places, but we're still a part of a group. We still have to all live together and interact together. Probably, yes. We could all separate out one of those little dystopian novel things. We could. And all of my yeah, um, uh, new energy friends, have they seen a, yeah, um, uh, a refinery? And understand, look, I, I watch the car you drive. I wa- You go to a meeting, you have an EV, and the five people that you met with don't. And that restaurant you, you ate at is, you know, is a combination of gas and electric. And you think we'll just wave this away. No, no. you, you got to get a ton of BTUs. Oil or coal and oil, and to a lesser extent gas, it's not, but coal and oil are about as great a energy storage and carrier mechanism as you can find because they're dense and relatively easy to get it out of, right? So we're trying to replace some really awesome stuff and we need to respect that they're really good at the job. And that's partly why our economy is where it is and has the opportunity to do this. And then we need to figure out, well, how do you want to run a modern economy? And then we're going to dump all this on the grid, but we're still running a grid with policies and frameworks and infrastructure designs from the early 1900s. We have to rewrite that from scratch. We've got another investment in a company that's doing called Resilient Power, where we're doing solid state transformers to rewrite the grid. Their initial product is to solve EV charging problems, but the real goal is you can't run the grid in 2100 with what we envision the way we're running it today. And frankly, we shouldn't be running one today the way we were running it in 1950. It is stupid, but our policymakers have gotten it embedded there. You can't put modern technology on the grid in the US because rate-based doesn't make sense for you know, for new technology. It's a bad regulatory model. I, I can't solve that. We just go sell the product where it'll go and the countries or the jurisdictions that have it. Yeah, ERCOT, we whine about Storm Uri and all these problems. We're not even bothering to fix our grid. The bill in the Texas Senate that could have fixed it failed because it was a cat fight between renewables and fossil people. All very fixable. Very fixable. You should come away from you know, a podcast like this as a technology and climate and economic optimist. 
Well, there you go, Earthlings. Climate optimism outlined by someone who understands the nitty-gritty of all the challenges that we face. Some of my main takeaways from our time with Neil are that like market mechanisms do work if they're set up properly, but if you have too many of them, they become fragmented and then they're ineffective, that we are definitely not going to have a price on carbon, even though it would be simpler for everybody. So we're just going to go about addressing climate change and this energy transition in a messy, expensive way. Uh, So it's just going to be extra steps, but that's okay. We'll get there. And, you know, I think what he's shared with us reminds me of this concept that, you know, at the end of the day, like we all kind of want the same thing. We just often disagree about the methods or mechanisms to get there. Like ultimately, I think we all want the right to self-determination and to live as we see fit and to feel respected and to feel like we belong and to feel like we're part of something bigger than ourselves, maybe. I mean, I could go on and on, but there's all these philosophical commonalities. It's just we often disagree on the how. So I have a challenge for you, Earthlings. This week, go find somebody that doesn't always agree with you philosophically and hear them out. Don't try to convince them of your side of things. Don't argue the positioning. Just listen to them. Be present. Be curious. Try to understand what motivates their thought process. And see if you come away from that conversation with a deeper understanding of this person that could then help you understand other types of people and what motivates them. Because I think you might find out we all have more in common than you think. Because when it comes to this beautiful blue-green space flower that we call home, we can't really escape it right now. So we might as well learn to collaborate. Hey, listeners. This show is a part of the Resource Labs Network. It's a curated collective of industry leaders who are accelerating the clean energy transition. If you want to find out more, visit us at resourcelabs.co.